In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and has been widely regarded as a bad move. This show will attempt to find the good, the bad, and the weird, and convey them in a seriously irreverent way. Get ready, adventurer, and as always, we apologize for the inconvenience. Hi, I'm Steven. I'm Aaron. And I'm John. It's time for the holiday episode of The Waft. Get show. yourself some scotch. I could use some right now. We've got, we're actually sitting at my house right now <laughs> recording this. We're watching our Yule Log video. <clears throat> we got Nick Offerman on the TV drinking, <laughs> was it Lagavulin? Probably. Is that that? Well, yeah, because I think this is technically kind of used as a little bit of a commercial for this scotch. It is a commercial, basically. Have you guys seen this video? It's a 45 minute video of Nick Offerman just sitting by a fireplace in a giant leather chair drinking scotch. Looking it looks very manly. Awesome. It does look awesome. Yeah. It's very he's weird. He's staring, just staring right at me. Right at yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> so that means this is our Christmas episode. This is the Christmas episode. We're going to do something a little different. All right. Here's, here's what we got in the store for you guys tonight. Uh, we're going to read you some short stories too specifically now i know that um a lot of you out there are familiar with the o henry short story the gift of the magi and steven you guys know this story mm-hmm. i do so you know okay just for those of you that don't to give you a quick rundown the gift of the magi is a story about uh, a poor husband and wife that don't have any money to buy each other christmas presents for christmas and the wife has this long beautiful hair and the husband has a pocket watch well what winds up happening Spoiler alert is that the husband sells his pocket watch to buy a beautiful ribbon, but the wife sells her hair to buy a chain for the pocket watch so that when they exchange gifts, voila, they can't use either one. And that's the end of the story, but it's sweet. Is that the story where Snape kills Voldemort? Uh, Yes. Spoiler alert. Snape does kill Voldemort. Actually, that was wrong. Um, It wasn't a spoiler. (laughs) How is that? I'm going to give a Star Wars spoiler if you do that again. Snape doesn't kill Voldemort. He kills Dumbledore. God. Oh, wait, that's right. Jesus. Okay, stop. All right. We so said anyway, spoiler alert. <laughs> anyway, just to give you a quick idea. Yeah, that's the gift of the Magi. And that's not the story that you're going to hear today. What we're going to do instead is we're going to read you two other O. Henry short stories. Why did you pick O. Henry? Um, I like O. Henry because he is uh, kind of one of the original masters of... The surprise ending, end of the, the twist. twist ending. He was the original yeah. M Night Shyamalan Ding Dong. No, no, that was R. L. Stein. <laughs> it was not R. L. Stein. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, though, Henry is a famous American author. It is a pen name. Author. He's an, an author. author. It is a pen name. Not an Arthur. For William Sidney Porter, uh, this guy Sidney uh, Portier. No, William Sidney Porter. Uh, <laughs> Nick he was liked a native that joke. He of, smiled uh, when I said North that. Carolina and Texas. Um, one of the interesting facts that people often recall about him is that uh, he was jailed for three years um, in the early 20th century for embezzlement. And it was actually during this time that he was imprisoned that he became a writer and started writing these stories and kind of becoming known as uh, kind of the father of the of the surprise ending. Now, most of his short stories take place in New York City, which is actually where he wound up dying um ironically enough uh, a poor man and the reason i say that ironically is because oh henry's short stories have never gone out of print 
once they went in print, they they still get printed to this day. They're they're that popular. Um, you so don't hear anybody talk about them anymore, though. Yeah, no. So you don't really hear much about <laughs> O. Henry, and if you do, like I said, you always hear about it in terms of Gift of the Magi. So let's let's bring about another really cool, awesome adventure storyteller, O. Henry. And the two stories we're going to read for you guys today. The first one is called The Last Leaf. It was published in 1907. I think that can be found in a short story book called The Trimmed Lamp and Other Stories. And then the second story that we're going to read, this was published in 1906. It's called The Green Door, and that is from the collection The Gift of the Magi and Other Stories. So these are kind of in the same vein as Gift of the Magi. Um, Was this book you have here all of his short stories? This book I have here is just a collection of 41 short stories by Henry. Why 41? I don't know why they picked 41. And they're all all different ones. It's kind of cool because he went and started. They're all different. I'd hate to get a book where it's all the same story 41 times. Oh, shut up. You know what I mean? There's there's different styles. There's like some westerns in there, I think. But uh, these are all part of this little collection in this particular book called The Big City because these all take place in New York City. Um, and again, this is uh, also taking place in the early 20th century. Make sure you're watching Nick Offerman's Yule Log. You've got to have that playing while you listen to this. Or if you're so inclined, there is also the Darth Vader Yule Log, which I will accept. <laughs> There's a Darth Vader Yule Log? Yeah, it's 45 minutes of watching Darth Vader burn on the funeral pile. Oh, wow. You know, like last year, I watched that whole seven-hour movie of that train ride in Norway. <laughs> Are you serious? That was awesome. Snowing outside, and I lay on the couch okay, and just watched the train ride. Okay, pull up your train ride, your Vader, your Your favorite Nick Yule Offerman. Log video. If you have a real fireplace, start a fire in there. As long as it's safe, as long as you got the flue open. Stop it. What? I don't want no safety regulations. <laughs> Either way, get, get cozy. Gather the family around. This is going to be some old-timey radio listening. Old-timey, eh? So here we go. I'm going to start this out. This is the first of our two O. Henry short stories. There will not be a cue from Nick. All right, we're going again. All right. The Last Leaf by O. Henry. We're all going to take turns reading this, right? Yes. Yeah, you're going to hear each of these stories three times, read by each of us, and then you'll vote on Twitter later who did it the best. And just to let you know, these are they're like six, seven pages long, so they're not. They're no, not I'm long. joking. We're going to okay. just trade off. All right, let's go. All right, the last leaf. In a little district west of Washington Square, the streets have run crazy and broken themselves into small strips called places. These places make strange angles and curves. One street crosses itself a time or two. An artist once discovered a valuable possibility in the street. Suppose a collector with a little bill for paints, paper, and canvas should, in traversing this route, suddenly meet himself coming back, without a cent having paid on account. So, to quaint old Greenwich Village, the art people soon came prowling. Hunting for north windows and 18th century gables and Dutch attics and low rents. Then they imported some pewter mugs and a chafing dish or two from 6th Avenue and became a colony. At the top of a squatty three-story brick, Sue and Johnsy had their studio. Johnsy, of course, being familiar for the name Joanna. One of them was from Maine, and the other, she was from California. They had met at the table de haute of an 8th Street Delmonico's and found their taste in art chicory salad, and bishop sleeves so congenial that the joint studio resulted. That was in May. In November, a cold, unseen stranger whom the doctors called pneumonia stalked about the colony, 
touching one here and there with his icy fingers. Over on the east side, this ravager strode boldly, smiting his victims by scores, but his feet trod slowly through the maze of the narrow and moss-grown places. Mr. Pneumonia was not what you would call a chivalric old gentleman. A mite of a little woman with blood thinned by California zephyrs was hardly fair game for the red-fisted, short-breathed old duffer. But Johnsy he smote, and she lay scarcely moving on her painted iron bedstead, looking through the small Dutch window panes at the blank side of the next brick house. One morning, the busy doctor invited Sue into the hallway with a shaggy gray eyebrow. She has one chance in, let's say, ten, he said, as he shook down the mercury in his clinical thermometer, and that chance is for her to want to live. This way people have of lining up on the side of the undertaker makes the entire pharmacy look silly. Your, lady, your little lady has made up her mind that she's not going to get well. Has she something on her mind? Well, she, she wanted to paint the Bay of Naples someday, said Sue. Paint? Bosh! Has she anything on her mind worth thinking about twice? Like a man, for instance? A man, said Sue, with a juice harp twang in her voice. Is a man worth... But no, doctor, there is nothing of that kind. Well, it is the weakness then, said the doctor. I will do all that science, so far as it may filter through my efforts, can accomplish. But whenever my patient begins to count the carriages in her funeral procession, I subtract 50% from the curative powers of medicine. If you will get her to ask one question about the new winter styles and cloak sleeves, I will promise you a 1 in 5 chance for her instead of 1 in 10. After the doctor had gone, Sue went into the workroom and cried a Japanese napkin to a pulp. Then she swaggered into Johnsy's room with her drawing board, whistling ragtime. Johnsy lay, scarcely making a ripple under the bedclothes with her face toward the window. Sue stopped whistling, thinking she was asleep. She arranged her board and began a pen and ink drawing to illustrate a magazine story. Young artists must pave their way to art by drawing pictures for magazine stories that young authors write to pave their way to literature. As Sue was sketching a pair of elegant horseshoe riding trousers and a monocle on the figure of the hero, an Idaho cowboy, she heard a low sound, several times repeated. She went quickly to the bedside. Johnsy's eyes were wide open. She was looking out the window and counting. Counting backward. Twelve, she said, and a little later. Eleven. And then ten. And nine. And then eight. And seven, almost together. Sue looked solicitously out the window. What was there to count? There was only a bare, dreary yard to be seen and the blank side of a brick house 20 feet away. An old, old ivy vine, gnarled and decayed at the roots, climbed halfway up the brick wall. The cold breath of autumn had stricken its leaves from the vine until its skeleton branches clung almost bare to the crumbling bricks. What is it, dear? asked Sue. Sick, said Johnsy, in almost a whisper. They're falling faster now. Three days ago, there was almost a hundred. It made my head ache to count them. But now it's easy. There goes another one. There are only five left now. Five what, dear? Tell your sooty. Leaves. On the ivy vine. When the last one falls, I must go too. I've known that for three days. Didn't the doctor tell you? Oh, I've never heard of such nonsense, complained Sue with magnificent scorn. What have old ivy leaves to do with your getting well? And you used to love that vine, so you naughty girl, don't be a goosey. 
Why, the doctor told me this morning that your chances for getting well real soon were, let's see, exactly what did he say? He said the chances were 10 to 1. Well, that's almost as good a chance we have to, in New York when we ride the streetcars or walk past a new building. Try to take some broth now and let Sudi go back to her drawing so she can sell the editor man with it and buy port wine for her sick child and pork chops for her greedy self. You needn't get any more wine, said Johnsy, keeping her eyes fixed out the window. There goes another. No, I don't want any broth. That leaves just four. I want to see the last one fall before it gets dark. Then I'll go too. Johnsy, dear, said Sue, bending over. Will you promise me to keep your eyes closed and not look out of the window until I'm done working? I must hand those drawings in by tomorrow. I need the light or I would draw the shade down. Couldn't you draw in the other room, said Johnsy coldly? I'd rather be here by you, said Sue. Besides, I don't want you to keep looking at those silly ivy leaves. Tell me as soon as you finish, said Johnsy, closing her eyes and lying white and still as a fallen statue. Because I want to see the last one fall. I'm tired of waiting, tired of thinking. I want to turn loose my hold on everything and go sailing down, down, just like one of those poor tired leaves. Try to sleep, said Sue. I must call Berman up to be the model for my old hermit miner. I'll not be gone a minute. Don't try to move till I come back. Old Berman was a painter who lived on the ground floor beneath him. He was past 60 and had a Michelangelo's Moses beard curling down from the head of a satyr along the body of an imp. Berman was a failure in art. Forty years he had wielded the brush without getting near enough to touch the hem of his mistress's robe. Yet he'd been always about to paint a masterpiece, but had never yet begun it. For several years he had painted nothing except now and then a daub in the line of commerce or advertising. He earned a little by serving as a model to those young artists in the colony who could not pay the price of a professional. He drank gin to excess and still talked of his coming masterpiece. For the rest, he was a fierce little old man who scoffed terribly at softness in anyone and who regarded himself as a special mastiff-in-waiting to protect the two young artists in the studio above. Sue found Berman smelling strongly of juniper berries in his dimly lidded den below. In one corner was a blank canvas on an easel that had been waiting there for 25 years to receive the first line of a masterpiece. She told him of Johnsy's fancy and how she feared she would, indeed, light and fragile as a leaf herself, float away when her slight hold upon the world grew weaker. Old Berman, with his red eyes plainly streaming, shouted his contempt and derision for such idiotic imaginings. Vas, he cried. Is there people in the world mid their foolishness to die because they leaves drop from a confounded vine? I have not heard of such a thing. No, I will not buzz a model for your fool hermit dunderhead. Why do you allow that silly pussiness to come in the brain of her? Ah, don't poor little Miss Yonzi. She is very ill and weak, said Sue, and the fever has left her mind morbid and full of strange fancies. Very well, Mr. Berman. If you do not care to pose for me, you needn't. But I think you are a horrid old, old flibber to gibbet. You are just like a woman, yelled Berman. Who said I will not boze? Go on, I commit you. For half an hour I have been trying to say that I'm ready to boze. God, this is not any place in which one so good as Miss Yonzi shall lie sick. Someday I will paint a masterpiece and we shall go all away. God, yes. Yonzi was sleeping when they went upstairs. Sue pulled the shade down to the windowsill and motioned Berman into the other room. <clears throat> and there they peered out the window fearfully at the ivy vine. 
Then they looked at each other for a moment without speaking. A persistent cold rain was falling, mingled with snow. Berman, in his old blue shirt, took his seat at the hermit miner on an upturned kettle for a rock. When Sue awoke from an hour's sleep the next morning, she found Johnsy with dull, wide-open eyes staring at the drawn green shade. Pull it up. I want to see, she ordered in a whisper. Wearily, Sue obeyed. But lo, after the beating rain and fierce gusts of wind that had endured through the live-long night, there yet stood out against the brick wall one ivy leaf. It was the last on the vine, still dark green near its stem, but with its serrated edges, but with its serrated edges tinted with the yellow of dissolution and decay, it hung bravely from a branch some twenty feet above the ground. It is the last one, said Johnsy. I thought it would surely fall during the night. I heard the wind. It will fall today, and I shall die at the same time. Dear, dear said Sue, leaning her worn face down to the pillow. Think of me. If you won't think of yourself, what would I do? But Johnsy did not answer. The lonesomest thing in all the world is a soul when it is making ready to go on its mysterious far journey. The fancy seemed to possess her more strongly as one by one the ties that bound her to friendship and to earth were loose. The day wore away. And even through the twilight, they could see the lone ivy leaf clinging to its stem against the wall. And then, with the coming of the night, the north wind was again loosed, while the rain still beat against the windows and pattered down the low Dutch eaves. When it was light enough, Johnsy, the merciless, commanded that the shade be raised. The ivy leaf was still there. Johnsy lay for a long time looking at it. And then she called to Sue, who was stirring her chicken broth over the gas stove. I've been a bad girl, Sooty, said Johnsy. Something has made that last leaf stay there to show me how wicked I was. It is a sin to want to die. You may bring me a little broth now, and some milk with a little port in it, and... No, bring me a hand mirror first, and then pack some pillows about me, and I will sit up and watch you cook. An hour later, she said, Sooty, someday I hope to paint the Bay of Naples. The doctor came in the afternoon, and Sue had an excuse to go in the hallway as he left. Even chances, said the doctor, taking Sue's thin, shaking hand in his. With good, with good nursing, you'll win. Now, I must see another case I have downstairs. Berman, his name is. Some kind of an artist, I believe. Pneumonia, too. He is an old, weak man, and the attack is acute. There is no hope for him, but he goes to the hospital today to be made more comfortable. The next day, the doctor said to Sue, She's out of danger. You've won. Nutrition and care now. That's all. And that afternoon, Sue came to the bed where Johnsy lay, contentedly knitting a very blue and very useful woolen shoulder scarf, and put one arm around her, pillows and all. I have something to tell you, White Mouse, she said. Mr. Berman died of pneumonia today in the hospital. He was ill only two days. The janitor found him in the morning on the first day in his room downstairs, helpless with pain. His shoes and clothing were wet through and icy cold. They couldn't imagine where he had been on such a dreadful night. And then they found a lantern, still lighted, 
and a ladder that had been dragged from its place, and some scattered brushes, and a palette with green and yellow colors mixed on it, and look out the window, dear, at the last ivy leaf on the wall. Didn't you wonder why it had never fluttered or moved when the wind blew? Ah, darling, it's Berman's masterpiece. He painted it there the night that the last leaf fell. Wow. How does that not bring a tear to your eye? A little bittersweet. Sacrificing himself. Nick really liked that story. Did Nick like it? We're still sitting here watching Nick. He crossed his legs. Yeah, while reading it, he crossed his legs. I have a feeling that uh, the fire in this video is itself a Yule Log video. Is that... That's not an actual No, that's an actual fire. Look at the the reflections off the glass and the... I think it's a TV. You no, can see the not. reflections in the glass of his. It's got to be a gas fireplace. I mean, the logs never even change. Sure. Yeah, it is a gas. I mean, you can see the gas jets. There's anyway, four distinct. <laughs> was that not unbelievably precious of Mr. Berman? Very much. His masterpiece. He saved Johnsy. At the cost of his own life. He had never bothered to paint anything on the canvas down in his studio, but he managed to get out It'd on be a cold, Christmas snowy night and paint one single leaf that saved a life. Does that, does that story kind of remind you of some other kind of story about an individual who sacrificed themselves so that others may live? Does that sound familiar? Santa? You're talking about Obi-Wan in the first Star Wars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he dies. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he sacrifices himself purposely in front of Luke to not only ensure their escape, but it also triggers Luke into his journey to you become know, Star a Jedi. Wars, Star Wars isn't a movie. It's a religion. Yeah. All right, well, the other thing I like about that, the fact that it's a, a painted leaf, is the power of art. Yeah, that as well. I mean, these were artists in the Greenwich Village community, and... They were, they were a community, and they helped each other. They always stuck together, and, and John Z and Sue coming together, one from California and the other from Connecticut. And so years from now, if another artist comes along and like paints a mural over that leaf, is John Z going to die instantly? Right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> With one roll of a brush, I don't John wanna, Z dies. I don't want to think about it. It's that. like Just getting one, unplugged from the Matrix. One whitewash roller. Hmm. No, I don't want to think about that. This is Christmas. This this needs to be a happy, joyous time. All right. We're on to the for, next sad story. We, we we ready for the next well actually <laughs> this one this one has this one has a much happier ending. I mean the other one kind of has a happy ending, but it's the last one was bittersweet. This one this one is not so bittersweet. Um it still has but it, its surprise ending isn't as much of a surprise ending. And this one's about an adventure. It's about someone who goes one, out and has an adventure. Is, this much one is like about an adventure. And it is called The Green Door. And this is the one that was written in 1906. So here we go. Our second story, The Green Door by O. Henry. Suppose you should be walking down Broadway after dinner with 10 minutes allotted to the consummation of your cigar while you are choosing between a diverting tragedy and something serious in the way of vaudeville. Suddenly, a hand is laid upon your arm. You turn to look into the thrilling eyes of a beautiful woman, wonderful in diamonds and Russian sables. 
She thrusts hurriedly into your hand an extremely hot buttered roll, flashes out a tiny pair of scissors, snips off the second button of your overcoat, meaningly ejaculates the one word parallelogram, and swiftly flies down a cross street looking back fearfully over her shoulder. That would be pure adventure. Would you accept it? No, not you. You would flush with embarrassment. You would sheepishly drop the roll and continue down Broadway, fumbling feebly for the missing button. This you would do unless you are one of the blessed few in whom the pure spirit of adventure is not dead. True adventurers have never been plentiful. They who are set down in print as such have been mostly businessmen with newly invented methods. They have been out after the things they wanted. Golden fleeces, holy grails, lady loves, treasure, crowns, and fame. The true adventurer goes forth aimless and uncalculating to meet and greet unknown fate. A fine example was the prodigal son when he started back home. Now half-adventurers... Brave and splendid figures have been numerous. From the Crusades to the Palisades, they have enriched the arts of history and fiction and the trade of historical fiction. But each of them had a prize to win, a goal to kick, an axe to grind, a race to run, a new thrust and tears to deliver, a name to carve, a crow to pick. So they were not followers of true adventure. In the big city, the twin spirits, romance and adventure, are always abroad seeking worthy wooers. As we roam the streets, they slightly peep at us and challenge us in 20 different guises. Without knowing why, we look up suddenly to see in a window a face that seems to belong to our gallery of intimate portraits. In a sleeping thoroughfare, we hear a cry of agony and fear coming from an empty and shuttered house. Instead of at our familiar curb, a driver deposits us before a strange door, which one with a smile opens for us and bids us enter. A slip of paper written upon flutters down to our feet from the high lattices of chance. We exchange glances of instantaneous hate, affection, and fear with hurrying strangers in the passing crowds. A sudden souse of rain and our umbrella may be sheltering the daughter of the full moon and first cousin of the sidereal system. At every corner, handkerchiefs drop, fingers beckon, eyes besiege, and the lost, lonely, the rapturous, the mysterious, the perilous changing clues of adventure are slipped into our fingers. But few of us are willing to hold and follow them. We are grown stiff with the ramrod of convention down our backs. We pass on, and someday we come at the end of a very dull life to reflect that our romance has been a pallid thing of a marriage or two, a satin rosette kept in a safe deposit drawer, and a lifelong feud with a steam radiator. Rudolf Steiner was a true adventurer. Few were the evenings in which he did not go forth from his hall bedchamber in search of the unexpected and the egregious. The most interesting thing in life seemed to him to be what might lie just around the next corner. Sometimes his willingness to tempt fate led him into strange paths. Twice he had spent the night in a station house. Again and again he had found himself the dupe of ingenious and mercenary tricksters. His watch and money had been the price of one flattering allurement. But with undiminished ardor, he picked up every glove cast before him into the merry lists of adventure. One evening, Rudolph was strolling along a crosstown street in the older central part of the city. Two streams of people filled the sidewalks, the home hurrying 
and that restless contingent that abandons home for the specious welcome of the thousand-candle-power table de haute. The young adventurer was of pleasing presence and moved serenely and watchfully. By daylight, he was a salesman in a piano store. He wore his tie drawn through a topaz ring instead of fashioned with a stick pen. And once he had written to the editor of a magazine that Junie's Love Test by Miss Libby had been the book that had most influenced his life. During his walk, a violent chattering of teeth and a glass case on the sidewalk seemed at first to draw his attention, with a qualm, to a restaurant before which it was set. But a second glance revealed the electric letters of a dentist sign high above the next door. A giant negro, fantastically dressed in a red embroidered coat, yellow trousers, and a military cap, discreetly distributed cards to those of the passing crowd who consented to take them. This mode of dentistic advertising was a common sight to Rudolph. Usually he passed this dispenser of the dentist cards without reducing his store, but tonight the African slipped one into his hand so deftly that he retained it there, smiling a little at the successful feat. When he traveled a few yards further, he glanced at the card indifferently. Surprised, he turned it over and looked again with interest. One side of the card was blank. On the other was written in ink in three words, the green door. And then Rudolph saw three steps in front of him, a man throw down the card the Negro had given him as he passed. Rudolph picked it up. It was printed with the dentist's name and address and the usual schedule of plate work and bridge work and crowns and specious promises of painless operations. The adventurous piano salesman halted at the corner and considered. Then he crossed the street, walked down a block, recrossed, and joined the upward current of people again. Without seeming to notice the Negro as he passed the second time, he carelessly took the card that was handed him. Ten steps away, he inspected it. In the same handwriting that appeared on the first card, the green door was inscribed upon it. Three or four cards were tossed to the pavement by pedestrians both following and leading him. These fell blank side up. Rudolph turned them over. Every one bore the printed legend of the dental parlors. Rarely did the arch-spite adventure need to beckon twice to Rudolf Steiner, his true follower, but twice it had been done, and the quest was on. Rudolf walked slowly back to where the giant negro stood by the case of rattling teeth. This time, as he passed, he received no card. In spite of his gaudy and ridiculous garb, the Ethiopian displayed a natural, barbaric dignity as he stood offering the card suavely to some, allowing others to pass unmolested. Every half minute he chanted a harsh, unintelligible phrase akin to the jabber of car conductors and grand opera. And not only did he withhold a card this time, but it seemed to Rudolph that he had received from the shining and massive black countenance a look of cold, almost contemptuous disdain. The look stung the adventurer. He read in it a silent accusation that he had been found wanting. Whether the mysterious written words of the cards might mean... Whatever the mysterious written words in the cards might mean, the black had selected him twice from the throng for their recipient, and now seemed to have condemned him as deficient in the wit and spirit to engage the enigma. Standing aside from the rush, the young man made a rapid estimate of the building in which he conceived that his adventure must lie. Five stories high it rose. A small restaurant occupied the basement. The first floor, now closed, seemed to house millinery or furs, the second floor, by the winking electric letters, was the dentist's. Above this, a polyglot babble of signs struggled to indicate the abodes of palmists, dressmakers, musicians, and doctors. 
Still higher up, draped curtains and milk bottles white on the windowsills proclaim the regions of domesticity. After concluding his survey, Rudolph walked briskly up a high flight of stone steps into the house. Up two flights of the carpeted stairway, he continued, and at its top, paused. The hallway there was dimly lit by two pale jets of gas, one far to his right, the other nearer to his left. He looked toward the nearer light and saw, within its wooing halo, a green door. For one moment he hesitated. Then he seemed to see the contumelious sneer of the African juggler of cards, and then he walked straight to the green door and knocked against it. Moments like those that had passed before his knock was an answered measure to the quick breath of true adventure. What might not be behind these green panels? Gamesters at play, cunning rogues baiting their traps with subtle skill, beauty in love with courage, and thus planning to be sought by it. Danger, death, love, disappointment, ridicule, any of these might respond to that temerarious rap. A faint rustle was heard inside, and the door slowly opened. A girl not yet twenty stood there white-faced and tottering. She loosed the knob and swayed weakly, groping with one hand. Rudolph caught her and laid her on a faded couch that stood against the wall. He closed the door and took a swift glance around the room by the light of a flickering gas jet. Neat, but extreme poverty was the story that he read. The girl lay still as if in a faint. Rudolph looked around the room excitedly for a barrel. People must be rolled upon a barrel who... No, no, that was for drowned persons. He began to fan her with his hat. That was successful, for he struck her in the nose with the brim of his derby and she opened her eyes. And then the young man saw that hers, indeed, was the one missing face from his heart's gallery of intimate portraits. The frank gray eyes, the little nose turning pertly outward, the chestnut hair curling like tendrils of a pea vine, seemed the right end and reward of all of his wonderful adventures. But the face was woefully thin and pale. The girl looked at him calmly and then smiled. Fainted, didn't I? she asked weakly. Well, who wouldn't? You try going without anything to eat for three days and see. Himmel, exclaimed Rudolph, jumping up. Wait till I come back. He dashed out the green door and down the stairs. In 20 minutes, he was back again, kicking at the door with his toe for her to open it. With both arms, he hugged an array of wares from the grocery and the restaurant. On the table, he laid them bread and butter, cold meats, cakes, pies, pickles, oysters, a roasted chicken, a bottle of milk, and one of red-hot tea. This is ridiculous, said Rudolph blusteringly. To go without eating, you must quit making election bets of this kind. Supper is ready. He helped her to a chair at the table and asked, Is there a cup for the tea? On the shelf by the window, she answered. When he turned again with the cup, he saw her, with eyes shining rapturously, beginning upon a huge dill pickle that she had rooted out from the paper bags with a woman's unerring instinct. He took it from her, laughingly, and poured the cup full of milk. Drink that first, he ordered, and then you shall have some tea, and then a chicken wing. If you are very good, you shall have a pickle tomorrow. And now, if you'll allow me to be your guest, we'll have supper. He drew up the other chair. The tea brightened the girl's eyes and brought back some of her color. She began to eat with a sort of dainty ferocity, like some starved wild animal. She seemed to regard the young man's presence, and the aid undervalued the conventions. But as one whose great stress gave her the right to put aside the artificial for the human, 
But gradually, with the return of strength and comfort, came also a sense of the little conventions that belong. And she began to tell him her little story. It was one of a thousand such as the city yawns at every day. The shop girl's story of insufficient wages, further reduced by fines that go to swell the store's profits, of time lost through illness, and then of lost positions, lost hope, and the knock of the adventurer upon the green door. But to Rudolph, the history sounded as big as the Iliad or the crisis in the book Junie's Love Test. To think of you going through all that, he exclaimed. It was something fierce, said the girl solemnly. And you have no relatives or friends in the city? None whatever. I am all alone in the world, too, said Rudolph after a pause. I am glad of that, said the girl promptly. And somehow it pleased the young man to hear that she approved of his bereft condition. Very suddenly, her eyelids dropped and she sighed deeply. I'm awfully sleepy, she said, and I feel so good. Rudolph rose and took his hat. Then I'll say good night. A long night's sleep will be fine for you. He held out his hand, and she took it and said, Good night. But her eyes asked a question so eloquently, so frankly and pathetically, that he answered it with words. Oh, I'm coming back tomorrow to see how you're getting along. You can't get rid of me so easily. Then at the door, as though the way of his coming had been so much less important than the fact that he had come, she asked, How did you come to knock at my door? He looked at her for a moment, remembering the cards, and felt a sudden jealous pain. What if they had fallen into other hands as adventurous as his? Quickly, he decided that she must never know the truth. He would never let her know that he was aware of the strange expedient to which she had been driven by her great distress. One of our piano tuners lives in this house, he said. I knocked at your door by mistake. The last thing he saw in the room before the green door closed was her smile. At the head of the stairway, he paused and looked curiously about him, and then he went along the hallway to its other end, and coming back, ascended to the floor above and continued his puzzled exploration. Every door that he found in the house was painted green. Wondering, he descended to the sidewalk. The fantastic African was still there. Rudolph confronted him with his two cards in his hand. Will you tell me why you gave me these cards and what they mean? He asked. In a broad, good-natured grin, the Negro exhibited a splendid advertisement of his master's profession. There it is, boss, he said, pointing down the street. But I suspect you is a little late for the first act. Looking the way he pointed, Rudolph saw above the entrance to a theater the blazing electric sign of its new play, The Green Door. I'm informed that it's a first-rate show, sir, said the Negro. The agent what represents it presented me with a dollar, sir, to distribute a few of his cards along with the doctor's. May I offer you one of the doctor's cards, sir? At the corner of the block in which he lived, Rudolph stopped for a glass of beer and a cigar. When he came out with his lighted weed, he buttoned his coat, pushed back his hat, and said stoutly to the lamppost on the corner, All the same, I believe it was the hand of fate that doped out the way for me to find her. Which conclusion, under the circumstances, certainly admits Rudolf Steiner to the ranks of the true followers of romance and adventure.
That's a good adventure. That is a great adventure. Another life saved. I like how your accent kind of went from like Jamaican to British a little bit. No, no. I think the first time that we read through it, I thought I was going to sound German. That's, uh, I'm not a good in, I'm not good with accents. But that's another that's another fantastic story. It's sort of both of those being stories of people acting as saviors. So I think that's one of the things that O. Henry likes to show is that you know it's within all of us to do good, to possibly be the person that could be somebody's somebody's savior, to be somebody's fateful knock at the door that brings them food when they're a starving shop girl with no means. I think it kind of goes to what we all hope a little bit when we go out on some sort of adventure. I don't go out into the city and go do things with the hope of just doing them alone and not talking to anybody. I mean, every time you go out and do something, like, you know, last night at the pump's birthday party, I can't tell you how many new people we met. And that's why we go out and adventure with the hope of meeting new people and maybe starting new relationships, maybe being a change in someone's life that they've been looking for or someone being that way to you. Maybe someone's going to come knock on your door, bring you dinner. In fact, Dave Detling did that the other day. I just, <laughs> he just knocked on my door and I said, Hey, how's it going? Dave? He goes, I thought I'd come over and cook you breakfast. Like that's, those are my kind of people. I love that. Well, there you go. And it's been great this whole time having Nick Offerman just watching us. We really are watching Nick Offerman while we're doing this. It's we're watching of, Nick Offerman watch watching us. us. <laughs> yes. We need to get a picture with this. That'll be our picture with Nick Offerman and the Yule Log. So I like I like the tradition of the Yule Log thing. It's just it's time to sit down, reflect, relax. You said log. I did say log. I gotta go <laughs> drop a Yule Log here in a minute. <laughs> okay. All right, well then we're gonna But this was our Yule Log. Us us reading <laughs> O. Henry stories to you of adventurers and why you should go out and and mingle with the people of the city. No. And the other thing I liked about that last story that I picked up on was that guy was an adventurous person already and he had this inclination and his nature took that card and triggered him on his own adventure that actually had nothing to do with the card. That's right. Like the card wasn't about the green door in the building. It was about the green door play down the street. Right. But his nature of seeking adventure, he, he started reading more into it. He started looking and it led him to his own little journey. Yeah. And that's, that, that is the great surprise ending to this one that I feel like is that he did create his own adventure himself. I mean, it's not like, it's not like it was an obvious mistake that he made by mistaking a green door or something that could have been actually a play. He basically created that all himself. He, he, he made his own sense of adventure. Lagavulin, 16-year-old scotch. That's, yep. what, he was that's what he was drinking. My Tales and of Whiskey, Holiday Edition by Nick Offerman. He's and done. now that, that that's over, I think it's I think time we're to wrap done up. Well, then I'll, I'll go ahead and lead us out of this. Um, thank you so much for joining us for the Wafty Show Holiday Edition. Uh, we wish you guys a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. and Or Festivus and or whatever or Festivus. holiday Festivus you may celebrate. I hope you enjoyed Hanukkah. We love all of you out there. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. All that jazz. You've been listening to The Wafty Show with Stephen, Aaron, and John. 
As always, we need to thank Joshua Path for the use of our theme song, Cement Truck, off the album Between Heaven and Jonestown, recorded by the magnificent Kurt PR. Kurt's awesome! That is available on iTunes, CD Baby, and anywhere the internet can be found. Remember, as you go out to visit our local places and events, make sure you take care of those who take care of you. Tip your waiters, waitresses, bartenders, musicians, and artists. They're out there working hard for you. One of our favorite adventures is the Escape OKC. Wafty listeners get an exclusive discount when they use the coupon code listen to wafty That's listen the number 2, W-A-F-T-I. Visit theescapeokc.com and book your room now. You can help us continue our urban adventures by going to our website, www.waftyshow.com, and clicking on Support Us, where you will find a variety of ways to contribute, including becoming a Wafty Knight, which will grant you access to our exclusive content. We come out with a new episode every Monday. You can find us on iTunes by searching We Apologize for the Inconvenience, where you can subscribe, rate, and comment. We're on soundcloud.com slash show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Wafty Show, Facebook.com slash Wafty Show, and of course, www.waftyshow.com. We'll, we'll see, see you next week. week. Woo! You get the whiskey, baby. I'll get the wine now, baby.